And now our event. I'm delighted to welcome to you, to you the Canadian Club's 33rd Annual Financial Outlook Luncheon in partnership with the National Post. The event today is obviously a long-standing tradition of ours. And thanks to the insights of our esteemed panel of experts and the choreographic talents of our moderator, our annual Outlook Luncheon is, as always, a lively, thought-provoking, and entertaining way to launch another new season of exciting events here at the Canadian Club. What a year 2009 was. The trepidation, the elation, the highs, the lows, and the just-so-sos. Just as our panel had predicted last year at this time, well, almost, to refresh our collective memory of last year's Outlook 2009 luncheon, this was supposed to be the year of the bull. The borrow-to-buy financing model was to be replaced by the ultra-conservative earn-and-save one. In early 2009, the Main Street effects of the recession were just beginning, our experts told us. The real estate market was vulnerable and to setbacks. Interest rates would be cut by half of, half of one percentage point. And the Canadian dollar would remain volatile with a value in the low to mid-80s U.S. Ottawa's top priority in 2009 was to be the economy. And we'd see strong international cooperation to backstop the global economic slide and introduce sweeping reforms. Prime Minister Stephen Harper would weather out the year unchallenged, focusing on just staying the course. We worried how long it would take the Conservatives' economic stimulus package to become operational, and whether enough, whether enough shovels could be put in the ground fast enough to create jobs, jumpstart the economy, and make the difference we were all promised. Well, predictions are not an exact science. But that won't let us stop us from having an, asking our, our panel members to do it again this year and give their forecast for 2010. I'd like to start by introducing and welcoming our moderator, Sean Rousset, consumer specialist and investigative reporter of Global Toronto. Sean will be engaging some of the country's best political and financial minds in our discussion today, helping to identify the real issues and put some context on what 2010 most likely has in store for Canadians. We're pleased to welcome back Terence Kikorin, Diane Francis, Warren Justin, and Don Martin. So, Sean, again, welcome, and let me turn things over to you. Welcome, Sean Osei. Thank you, John. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you again for, for joining us all here today. I'm pleased to assume the role of moderator uh, again this year for this year's Outlook event. And I'd like to thank the Canadian Club of Toronto, the National Post, and Scotiabank for inviting me to take part in today's program. Now, this afternoon's program will proceed as follows. Each of our expert panelists will take to the podium and make their case to present their forecast for 2010. Following the presentation, following their presentations, we'll be opening up the floor to you for the question and answer session. And as John mentioned, uh, you're going to find question cards on your table, like these. Uh, you can write down, jot down your questions and, uh, for any of the panelists. Later on in the program, somebody will be coming around to collect those cards, and they'll be handed to me. So I'd like to encourage you all to make uh, good use of this opportunity to go one-on-one uh, -on -one with the speakers. And now, without further delay, I'd like to call upon our first presenter, Mr. Warren Jeston. Warren? Yeah, just before I get up, Sean was telling me that he watched last year's uh, prognostications in the uh, digital library at which these things are kept. And this is an extremely scary thing for a, a forecaster to, uh, to realize, and that is your forecast can live forever. Uh, with that in mind, I'm going to stay fairly general in terms of my prognostications today. <laughs> but uh, I will say that we do uh, very strongly believe we are on the road to recovery, but that road isn't taking us back 
to where we were before the recession began. And in general terms, the new world reality in our view is that if you stick to the familiar and avoid the unfamiliar, that type of strategy is a losing one for both businesses and governments. Things are changing very, very fundamentally. And towards the end of what I'm going to say, I will explain exactly what that means. So far, we have gone through four phases in this economic setback. The first phase, a couple of years ago, we felt very special. We had the strongest banking system in the world. Our households, our governments, and our corporations had stronger balance sheets than south of the border. We had effectively bidding wars in the Toronto market and in Vancouver at a time when the U.S. housing market was crumbling. That all came to an end in September of 2008, and uh, our economy at that time was sideswiped not only by the, uh, the uh, meltdown of the financial system globally, but by the crash in commodity prices. An important event because it was triggered largely not only by a setback in developed countries, but by a slowdown in the emerging world, showing that the emerging economies increasingly are having more influence on our economy than I think many people realize. So we went from the special stage, the sideswipe phase, where the news was always worse than expected. That was the situation from September of 2008 until about March of 2009. Almost any economic indicator fit into that category, much, much worse than expected. We wrote a, a, a revision to our forecast in March of this year in which we suggested that the uh, economic decline was coming to an end, and I got a call from uh, one reporter suggesting that was an unrealistic forecast. We had become so extraordinarily negative about the outlook that just saying that it might end was considered excessive optimism. <laughs> but around that time, we did enter a new phase, bouncing along bottom. We went through that phase through the spring and the summer and into the fall, where there was a mix of good and bad news. And finally, we have left that phase into the good news phase the good news being less bad news, consistently less bad news over time. And I think what we're going to see, not only we thought seeing it in recent months, but in the months ahead, is a real change in the balance. Economic news is going to be better than expected. We're going to see increasingly more optimism in terms of the economic indicators, in terms of employment, in terms of uh, output increases and retail sales and the like. I think that carries through into mid-year, largely on the back of big government stimulus. Those shovel-ready projects are finally getting into the ground. Business inventories have been trimmed in some sectors, and production is starting up again. The good example is the auto sector, which virtually shut down in the first half of last year and has started up and added a lot to growth in Canada and the U.S. Uh, in recent months, and that growth will continue. So that will lead to a, a pop in economic uh, performance that will suggest that we are on the road to recovery, and I think that will carry through in the second half of the year. But by the end of this year, and it may well occur uh, in, the, in the fall of the year, we will realize something different. This will be the new phase. And that will be the phase that while we have better than expected uh, performance, that by and large the economic growth trends that are emerging are slower than what we saw before the recession began. So that in Canada and the U.S., 2.5% may be the growth trend that we see over the next five years, or perhaps less. Not the 3 to 3.5 or 4% growth worlds that we experienced in the past. In Europe, less than 2%. In Japan, less than in Europe. So the developed world, the G8, in our view, is going into a much slower growth reality than we have seen. And it happens for a number of reasons. I mean, initially because monetary policy tightens and interest rates go up. 
We'll probably see the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve tighten interest rates uh, to the point of a couple of percentage points between the middle part of this year and the middle part of, of the following year. You will also see bond yields going up. Government policy will shift from stimulus to retrenchment to get deficits under control. But the demographics are pointing in the same direction as well. Population that is getting older, more cautious with spending. Populations that are tending to uh, be growing at a slower rate. And of course, the financial system is changing. Leverage is going down. Uh, caution is going up. Lending practices are going to be tightened. All of these things suggest a slower growth reality as we go into the, uh, the first half of the next decade. At the same time, in all the phases that I've described, the emerging world has outperformed the developed world by a very substantial margin. Uh, China, bad growth last year, a little over 8%, accelerating to uh, close to 9.5-10% perhaps this year. Uh, you can look at India and a variety of other countries, Brazil and the like. A multiple of the growth performance of the, uh, of the developed world. And in fact, you see that influencing us in a variety of ways. It's no longer the G8 that are calling the shots in terms of global economic policy. It's been expanded to the G20. When you look at the uh, car industry, for example, China selling more cars than the U.S. last year is a good example of things changing pretty fundamentally. Oil prices, which we expect to go up to $90 on average this year, perhaps more next year, being driven by the reemergence of the emerging world as the growth leader globally. Uh, looking at tourism, uh, U.S. travelers are traveling less. Chinese, Indian, uh, Brazilian travelers are traveling more. Foreign investment, the cash, is in the emerging world. And in fact, if you put all these things together, the reality that we are facing is very fundamentally different than we have seen in the past. So going back with my uh, initial statement, if you stick with the familiar, the familiar markets, the U.S., the familiar policies of, an, of picking winners and losers in the industrial structure. If you, uh, if you stick with uh, government policies that are embedded in what we have done over the last decade or two, it will probably be a losing strategy. The big growth areas are going to be in emerging economies. The big growth areas in manufacturing and services are going to be in high performance, uh, highly skilled uh, uh, industries or firms rather that are dealing in niche markets plugged into global supply chains or have a unique service that they can offer in their current markets. What about the financial outlook for, uh, for the next year or so? I've already mentioned higher interest rates and where we see that going. Both commodity prices on the rise in part uh, propelled by uh, emerging economy performance. I suspect the Canadian dollar is going to rise as well, moving towards parity and perhaps beyond. Another sign that the business conditions that we have to adjust to will be fundamentally different than we have seen in the past. Challenges for some industries, but opportunities are emerging in others. In the new world that I've described, the emerging world, dealing with an aging population, which is going to have a very fundamental influence on where we're going over the next decade, creating enormous opportunity for businesses. Also in the world of going green, environmental remediation and those industries associated with improving energy efficiency will be the fastest growing industries in the world for the next decade. Those are the opportunities. What are the challenges? What would keep me awake at night? The potential for protectionism in a slower growing world. The advent of big government and much more regulation in a variety of areas. And given that many of the imbalances that we have seen created over the last uh, few years have not been corrected, 
the financial volatility that inevitably, I think, will be a much bigger part of our lives than we have seen in the past. So we are on the road to recovery. That road is not taking us back to where we were before the recession began. Thank you. I'd like to now call Mr. Terrence Corcoran to the podium. Terrence. Uh, thank you very much, Sean, and uh, uh, thank you very much, and uh, happy New Year, happy 2010 to everybody here. And uh, thank you so much for your attendance at these annual uh, events. It's, it's a humbling experience to have to stand before you each year at this time and deliver forecasts and predictions although it's not that humbling. Uh, in fact, looking back at the last couple of years, I don't feel humbled, humbled at all in view of my track record of dazzlingly accurate predictions. Uh, I used to hate making predictions, but since I discovered the Chinese zodiac, I found the perfect guide to the future. In 2008, based on the year of the rat, I predicted recession, currency crisis, oil market turmoil. In 2009, the year of the ox, I noted the similarities between a bull and an ox. And if you were here last year, you'll recall that I even presented uh, a little flash picture up a slide offering evidence that a Chinese ox and a stock market bull were pretty much identical. And uh, supporting the scientific leap to the logical conclusion that 2009 would produce a bull market in stock prices. As it turned out, the New York stock market posted a gain of 25%, Toronto 30%. So it looks like these uh, Chinese uh, uh, schemes, zodiac schemes, are pretty close to infallible. Uh, they're, like, they're like papal encyclicals, only more useful. <laughs> Certainly more useful than Pope Benedict's encyclical last July. I don't know how many of you remember it. It was called Caritas in Veritate, which in English roughly translates as beware free markets and the excessive pursuit of profit. <laughs> totally useless advice. Uh, uh, compare that with the Chinese zodiac advice for this year, which is the year of the tiger. According to the official website of the US Bridal Guide, which, which for some reason tracks these things, I don't know why. <laughs> this is the year of the metal tiger, which represents boldness, assertiveness, competitiveness, and achievement. The last year of the metal tiger was 1950, and in 1950, the New York market rose 29%. I rest my case. <laughs> so I predict another bullish year for 2010, although there are many reasons other than the Chinese zodiac to believe that this year, 2010, will be the year of the tiger, especially for Canada. 2010 will be the year of the Canadian tiger. Before I get to that, though, I want to touch on what seems to me the overriding issue that is shaking up the world economic order, and that's the decline of the United States of America into an alarming state of economic ideological and fiscal disrepair. That decline is one of the reasons that Canada is in a good position. 
The United States, once the symbol of free markets and small governments, is now, under Barack Obama and a Democrat-controlled Congress, becoming a paragon of big government statism, fiscal mismanagement, and monetary excess. Now, most of you will be aware of the details. Under Ben Bernanke, the US Federal Reserve, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, has brought interest rates to zero and pumped more than a trillion dollars into the banking system. Taking all that money back without triggering a serious recession or worse is a miracle Mr. Bernanke has yet to perform to earn his Man of the Year status. The US mortgage insurance giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are essentially bankrupt with the Obama administration now ready to pick up all of their losses, announced just before Christmas, estimated at up to a trillion dollars if all the bad mortgages are accounted for. The US government is, even in the view of many moderate economists, teetering on the brink of insolvency. Government spending already out of control under Bush is now driving the US economy into a black hole. Total debt could reach 200% of GDP within 20 years. Either spending will have to be cut dramatically, or taxes will have to increase dramatically. California is bust, and other states are facing massive deficits as revenues decline and spending rises. Meantime, in Washington, the government is taking over more and more edges of the economy. It has a powerful grip on the financial sector. Bankers are under the thumb of politicians. CEO pay is under government watch. The U.S. mortgage market is essentially a nationalized industry. The government owns major parts of the auto industry. The private portion of the healthcare system is about to come under some form of national government control. The energy sector, already reeling in uncertainty, is about to get a carbon emissions cap-and-trade program, maybe. Now, against all of this, Canada looks pretty good. And who would have thought, five years ago, that Canada would be seen as the rising star against a fading America. Traditionally, we've usually been a rising star in the shadow of an American star as it rose. Investment advisors are now telling clients to increase their holdings in Canadian assets. Richard Salzman, based in North Carolina, told clients recently to hold 12% of their investment dollars in Canada, compared with only 2% a year ago. Donald Cox, of BMO Nesbitt Burns, who I'm sure many of you know, uh, 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 also recently advised his U.S. clients to overload on Canadian stocks compared with past years. The reasons for promoting Canada are many. Our government fiscal situation, while it's not great, looks benign compared with most of the developing world, especially the United States. Our banks for years decried by most Canadians as horrible oligopolists are now seen as corporate champions and models of prudence and sound management. Our natural resources from gold to energy will be in high demand as China and other developing nations expand regardless of how sluggish the US economy becomes under Obama. Under Bernanke, gold and commodity prices will inevitably rise. And our political scene looks kind of sensible. If I can borrow another note from Don Cox, what we don't have in Ottawa is a political counterpart to Barney Frank, Chris Dodd, and Nancy Pelosi. The activist left in Canada is 
as I see it, mostly dormant. And if Michael Ignatieff's liberals and Ignatieff himself have any great statist ambitions, they are mostly keeping them to the, themselves. Canada will also rise this year through the year in global profile, first with the Winter Olympics, with the G8 and G20 summits in Toronto later in the year. Now, while the Green left tried to portray Canada as a global fossil at the Copenhagen Climate Summit, Canada ultimately emerged unscathed at the end of the climate policy catastrophe. Copenhagen itself was the problem, not Canada. All this spells good, good economic fortune for 2010. As for the political environment, just as the final note, if Canada is to emerge as an economic tiger, then so might the Harper Tories emerge as political tigers. In an election year, this year, possibly September, in the wake of the Olympics and the G8 world leadership roles, Prime Minister Harper could win an election and return to Ottawa with the majority. Now, I suspect that doesn't make everybody in this room terribly happy. And I'm not sure myself, but it beats most of the alternatives we see south of the border and elsewhere, and that's why I think this is going to be the year of the Canadian Tiger. Thanks for your attention. Look forward to your questions as well. Thank you, Terence. Now, before I call upon our next panelist, I want to remind everybody about the Q&A session that's going to follow our final speaker. Please be sure to put your questions on the card I've got up here in the air. Once you're ready, make sure to raise it, and somebody will come around and, and pick it up, and uh, we'll, we'll pass those along in the question and answer period. Okay, now I want to call upon our next speaker, Mr. Don Martin. Don? It's been a couple of years since I was last here, and uh, some things have changed. Uh, all my friends say, will you stop using your high school photo in the ads for this conference? So I know I'm getting a little older. And uh, some things uh, haven't changed. Uh, my sister's back, threatening to ask me that question again about, why haven't you phoned your mother? <laughs> if, if you guys don't ask good questions, she will, right over there. And uh, secondly, my editors are all out in force saying that if you don't get your predictions right, you're going to be part of the surplus employment disposal program this year. So I'm going to try. It's a little embarrassing in a sense because uh, it's very hard to inject dramatic importance into Parliament right now because we're ending the year of the pointless Parliament in many ways and entering 2010 with a House of Commons that's basically gone walkabout to play games for the next 52 day, 56 days. MPs will earn $28,000 worth of their basic pay before they even set foot in the House of Commons this year on March 3rd. And that's a House of Commons that costs a million dollars a day to operate, whether, whether they're in their seats or not. So in that sense, it's pointless. And the, and the pointless sense is that, that we've obviously had the prorogation of Parliament that Mr. Harper announced on the eve of New Year's Eve, which is a sure sign he's a little bit sheepish about doing it. Now, you might have seen the Toronto Star headline today. Uh, grassroots fury sweeps the country against Mr. Harper's prorogation. That's a crock. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's, I think I've got two emails since this thing was announced <laughs> complaining about it. Most people have no idea whether Parliament's sitting. In fact, I remember walking, running into Preston Manning a few years ago, 
and uh, we were yakking about Parliament. And he's, I said, well, I'm off to Parliament Hill. And he says, so are they sitting? <laughs> now, that's, he wasn't the leader of a party. That would have been a really good story, but he was a private citizen. <laughs> but that just sort of tells you that the public really isn't that tuned in to whether Parliament's sitting or not. People actually ask me, what on earth is a prorogation? And in some ways, I guess you can describe it as a cross behind, between a, a mulligan and golf and a timeout for uh, two-year-olds in the corner, basically. <laughs> but I sure wish it's a concept we could enjoy, right? I mean, you're sitting there going, geesh, uh, uh, I mean, if I, could, I didn't like the way the annual general meeting was going, I could prorogue it. If I don't have a column topic for tomorrow, I can prorogue the publication of the National Post. It just doesn't work. And, and I also got to you know, cast a quizzical eye at the House of Commons, which has voted itself the month off so they can go watch the Winter Olympics. I don't know about you, I wish I could vote myself a month off to go watch the Winter Olympics. And they, get, and they get advanced access to prime tickets as well, although they do have to pay for it. So I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to give them that much. Prorogation killed half the bills that were on the order paper. And this was a bit rich because the government, as you may recall, was whining and sniveling, complaining about how the Senate was holding up uh, progress on all those crime bills. Prorogation killed them all. They got to reintroduce all these ones, and they were talking about some serious ones that combat terrorism, auto theft, upgrade the repeat sex offenders registry. And you got you to admire this guy for pulling the plug on it because I sat and I watched days of debate, days of debate about whether we should have a free trade agreement with Colombia. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought Colombia had coffee, cocaine, and I don't think we want to necessarily have free trade with them, but that's, now we have to reset everything to zero and start that whole tired debate over again. Um, but anyway, I also wanted to bring up a little bit of my, um, well, I guess the effect of all these prorogations, as well as the minority governments, is you're seeing the window of action, the window that governments will move on policy shrinking and shrinking down to where it literally they only look at policy in terms of months. No one thinks in terms of long range because there's going to be an election or why debate all these bills because they're going to be prorogued and we're going to have to start all over again. So that's, that's been the most direct consequence of all this minority government and prorogation nonsense. I do have to admit it's a little embarrassing in a sense to be up here and talk to you as someone who lives in Ottawa and is supposed to cover Ottawa up close because this government, uh, in this government particularly, Ottawa has ceased to matter. Uh, Stephen Harper has showed up for less than half of the 49 sittings in the, uh, since September in the House of Commons. All major announcements are done, uh, like fiscal updates and report cards are done outside of Ottawa in front of hand-picked uh, uh, clap on command crowds, and uh, or they're announced on a plane while the prime minister is winging his way to China, as one case happened this year. Uh, the prime minister did not hold a single uh, news conference in Ottawa last year, and he did more interviews with Fox News than all Canadian television networks combined. And then he had to pay a lobbyist thirty thousand dollars to secure each one of those interviews. By the way, I'll stop whining now because, frankly, it's working. <laughs> Stephen Harper is on top of the polls. He looks like he's in pretty good shape. So perhaps the more dramatic story of the last year, and perhaps one that'll be uh, coming forward in the next little while, is the train wreck we call Iggy. Um, I've got this informal focus group that um, I consult on all things liberal because, frankly, I don't get liberals most of the time, which is why I'm a good National Post columnist, right, Doug? And um, so, but these people all tell me, you know, I consult one in particular, um, a liberal, a chronic liberal named Paul Martin, and I asked him about Michael Ignatiev. What do you thought about Michael Ignatiev? He says, I don't get this guy. This guy is just, 
not making it as far as I can see. I thought he was going to be a good guy, and I'm thinking to myself, now before my editors say, hang on, you mean to say the former Prime Minister of Canada was telling you bad things about Ignatius, and he didn't write a column about it, you idiot? It's my brother, okay, Paul Martin, he's, he's, he's a, but he's, but I think, but I think he shares the sentiment that a lot of Canadians do, huh? This is supposed to be an academic superstar, came down out of the ivory tower to save Canada, and he just simply hasn't showing much oomph. He's got all these new advisors he's put in place and if anything their only modus operandi seems to be to keep him out of the spotlight. When Stephen Harper announced the prorogation, Michael Ignatieff didn't even come out to say anything. He wrote an opinion piece and sent it into a newspaper. Um, now that might actually be a smart strategy because I think they've decided internally that the best way to survive is to just let the government um, crumble on itself as opposed to trying to tackle it on a daily basis or become the focus of attention, so we'll see. Quickly, what Parliament, before my friend Jackie zaps me with one of those uh, laser pointers she's got back there and says my time's up, um, you'll want to know what's going to happen with Parliament eventually returns after Canada wins five gold medals, including the hockey. Um, you can expect a cabinet shuffle in the uh, coming weeks. No one's sending me any clear signals anyway as how whether it's major or minor. Uh, Jim Prentice, as the Environment Minister, would clearly like to change uh, from his portfolio, believing it's a no-win one. Plus, he has to deal with Terry Corcoran all the time writing about climate gate, and he doesn't like that at all. Um, Natural Resources Minister Lisa Rates in an Ethics Committee probe, and it's not likely to go very well for her, so that might be a problem if they rule against her. And a guy named Maxime Bernier, you might recall him, the Foreign Affairs Minister that left his briefs at his girlfriend's house. Uh, <laughs> They want him back in cabinet because he represents a part of Quebec that uh, they desperately want to, to uh, procure some more seats. Uh, that lends us to the budget. Uh, well, actually, there won't be any other changes, really, because Harper just doesn't fire or replace without real serious cause. So I, I would be surprised. There's some talk that Flaherty is going to be moved aside because the idea that he's done all the deficit creation, another minister should step in and do the deficit elimination. I would be very surprised at that, but you never know. The March, the March budget has gotten to have very few surprises. They continue the stimulus program without further engorging the deficit. Um, the planning and finance now is focused more on easing the deficit out in the years to come rather than finding new ways to spend money, and that's a good thing. And because we've got two months when there's no parliament sitting, you're going to be bombarded with election speculation, so I'll throw my two cents worth out right now. If the budget is as inoffensive as its advanced build, and includes that provision to extend the popular home renovation tax credit, I think it's bulletproof. I can't imagine a party wanting to take them down. Uh, if there's one lesson that Iggy learned last fall, it was that uh, you, the voters will brass knuckle you in the polls if you try and prompt an election without cause other than looking like you can make a quick gain in the, in the election. I can't imagine it. Harper might try and play a game, stick a poison pill in there, but that would be seen as a fairly transparent force of an election and probably uh, punish him at the polls and deny him any majority rule. And frankly, people, he's got no opposition that wants to cause an election so he can govern like he's got a majority now, so why put it at electoral risk? I think he's just going to play the game calm until we get to the fall. Um, the best guess in the fall, if there is one, is another minority government. Uh, for those who insist, Terry, that a conservative majority is coming on, I still think you underestimate Michael Ignatieff. He's had a bad fall. Well, here's our liberal here. Bad fall. 
Um, and he's, but his team's getting together. I think they understand where they've got, what they've got to do to do it, uh, to, to keep that to, from eroding any further. Keep in mind, if Stephen Harper can't get a majority against a barely coherent Stefan Dion, whose showcase piece of legislation was a carbon tax that nobody wanted, how on earth can Michael Agatov do any worse? I can't imagine it. So my prediction is another minority government. I don't see how this prime minister can get any higher with the help of any of his friends, no matter how many times he sings that song or plays the piano. Thank you very much. Thank you, Don. Uh, we haven't had too many questions, so if you've got a question, please write it down, raise your hand, and we'll bring them up. Okay, now last but not least, I'd like to call upon our final pa panelist, Diane Francis. Diane. Thank you. So, Don, the taxpayer Canada is paying 30000 a pop to get the PM on Fox. I can write him a column about overpopulation. They'll pay you to go on. Anyway, um, great turnout. Thank you for coming. Um, last year, of course, just to summarize quickly, we were in dire straits, and as we know, looking back on it, it would seem, by the consensus of experts, that the fix was already in as of the middle of December, when the uh, G8 decided to backstop all the banks in the world. Uh, that helped start a, that that helped kickstart the financial bloodstream uh, back into flowing somewhat. And then the next fix was in the spring of 2009 when the G8, G20 announced that they would also backstop every country in the world. And that prevented some national catastrophes from hitting the wall. Um, things look okay, but it does look like we may end up with, in North America anyway, amerosclerosis, uh, a, a symptom uh, similar to, symptoms similar to Japan when they hit the wall and they stimulated and ended up with years and years of deflation and relatively high interest rates, albeit some economic growth, but not great. Uh, hopefully that doesn't befall us, but that seems to be the worry that everybody has. Uh, that leads to the next issue, which Terry talked about, and that is how do we exit from what Don Cox, to quote Don, uh, is uh, calling financial finance heroin. And Don uses the metaphor by describing his father's uh, efforts in the Second World War as a frontline anesthetologist and surgeon, and he used to prescribe the best uh, to the best painkiller was uh, was heroin. The problem was that while he relieved the the discomfort of the patients in the front line, uh, he had to get them off the drug as soon as possible, or they faced a lifetime of addiction and dysfunction. So he uses that metaphor, and I think that's a very good one in terms of how the policymakers and politicians are going to have to get us off the heroin, the financial heroin. So that'll be, uh, going forward over the next three to five years, a big challenge. Um, I think that uh, I'm going to give you a few of my fearless forecasts in the business, economic, and political world. Uh, and I think what's interesting, as Timothy Geithner recently said, that the bailout fallout is going to continue for quite, a, quite some time, and that is he described it as a tail to the bailout. And we saw what happened after the banks were bailed out in December and backstopped in December. We had Detroit fall apart, Dubai, now Greece, and stay tuned for the next one. So we still have more problems 
impending uh, the world economy. However, the positive is, as I see it, the great collaborative uh, effort of, on the part of the G20 uh, replacing the G8, and I think the world generally, central bankers and politicians pulled together to save us from the excesses of the U.S. Wall Streeters and banking system and mortgage system. And I think that the important thing is that we now have the lines of communication open in real time 24-7. Uh, and that's a very, very important uh, positive for the world in terms of economic management going forward. Um, the next issue, of course, which, which is a backdrop to everything, is the climate change issue. Uh, I've never understood or immersed myself in the science of climate change. However, as a Canadian uh, cold country, uh, global warming is sort of something that I'm a little ambivalent about. <laughs> Say, bring it on, uh, but especially in the, in the winter. But uh, the point is that the debate about it politically in all the countries and the Copenhagen um, effort, uh, I think, are kind of fruitless. I don't think we're going to derail it. The train has left the station. The optics are such that the world has grave pollution, global warming, global cooling, whatever you want to do, characterize it as problems, and there is some consensus about that. What I would say is going to happen is that the G20 will, in its next two sessions, the first one, of course, will be in Canada this, uh, this year, uh, it will deal with what Copenhagen couldn't. Essentially, you can't have a cast of tens of thousands of people as that was. The process was unwieldy. It's something like the creation of the Electoral College in the beginning of the American system where the tyranny of the, tyranny of the mob was just impossible uh, and open-ended democracies with many, many vested interests are, don't work. So the G20, I think, which represents almost 85% of the world economy, are going to operate like the Electoral College, a sort of a steering committee for global management and dealing with what is happening on the climate front and with pollution and so on. If they don't tweak the system to accommodate and deal with the issues that many people are, are very, very concerned about, uh, we will end up with ad hoc non-tariff barriers, green mail. We're going to end up with cap and trade uh, imposed on our oil exports to the U.S. and vice versa to things that are coming into the United States from other countries and things that are going from the U.S. So I think that they all want to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. So there is a momentum, there is an impetus, something will be done, and it won't probably be as draconian and as momentous as Morris Strong and the creators of the crisis and the U.N. Climate Committee would want, but I think that we will move forward in terms of dealing with some of the issues that are, are valid in a non-interventionist way. Uh, as for U.S. politics, uh, I was born in the United States. Uh, I think that's what's interesting is Obama is morphing into the Mackenzie King of American politics. What I mean by that is he is uh, annoying both the right and the left all the time, which is the perfect way to govern a country like the U.S. as Canada, which will really not ever have consensual beliefs in politics and in policies. For instance, the Afghanistan war initiative. He announces that he's going to deploy 30,000 more troops, which makes the right wing happy, the left wing unhappy, and then says, but they will be exiting within a year, which does the reverse. With health care, the left is upset because he's involved private insurance and he's compromised with the private insurance uh, and the other health providers. 
in terms of his policy, and he's annoyed the right wing by having the government involved at all in, in the non-Medicare part of the universal health care. So it's sort of the Mackenzie King, you know, war if necessary, but not necessarily war, uh, public involvement in health care, but not necessarily public involvement in health care. And I think that's a, a very interesting uh, a very interesting strategy going forward, and I think you'll, you'll see more of that. This fall, there'll be midterm elections in the U.S. Look for more Republicans to get elected. Sarah Palin will end up with a talk show on Fox, <laughs> which I won't appear on. Um, the, uh, she and Rush Limbaugh score higher than any Republican high-profile potential candidates, and they are not necessarily going to be voted voted for by Republicans. The Republican Party is being divided by these extremely uh, charismatic, but um, shall we say extreme, uh, right-wingers. And so that's probably good news for the Democrats, may mitigate some of the damage and the, and the problem in the fall. Uh, I would say that I defer to Don on the political thing. I don't think anybody will get a majority in Canada anytime too soon. I think we are a very fragmented country, and I like coalitions, by the way. And as far as business, uh, here are my forecasts, and this is hardly uh, rocket science. Commodities are going to remain strong as the recovery bites. Gold will hit uh, $1,500 and probably settle a year from now at $1,200. Canada will be one of the leaders in growth. The Bloomberg uh, estimate is 31% jump in our stock market, 3% GDP growth, which is slightly better than the U.S. Uh, the big business story will be the telecom sector, in my opinion, and that'll be because Google Voice will start to bite into the, the voice business, which is huge, and healthcare concerns about uh, brain cancer research and so on, and the use of cell phones will start to become a bigger issue. Shale gas is going to affect energy dynamics in future if, in fact, it's true that it is amazing. Exxon made its biggest bet in recent years in it. We have deflation, which means more government stimulus. We'll have low interest rates in Canada, which means real estate will be okay. I hope that Ottawa bridles the CMHC in terms of its loaning so we don't end up with a bubble. And the Canadian dollar will be strong because we track petro. We track the petro dollars. We are a petro dollar, and oil looks looks good in the next year. In conclusion, as I say every year, Canada remains the winner of the world's reverse beauty contest. In the world's reverse beauty contest, there are no beautiful, gorgeous winners. So the least ugly country wins, and Canada is the least ugly country in the world, and we're lucky to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. So now it's on to the questions, and Warren's had the longest rest, so he gets the first one. Diane talked about uh, housing toward the end. One of our questioners asks, are we facing a housing asset bubble? If so, how do we deal with it before the burst? No, I don't think we are, and uh, at least anytime soon. Uh, we've got an economy that's now adding jobs. We've got strong, uh, uh, strong growth uh, in uh, major uh, urban centers in terms of population. You're also finding that international investment in uh, attractive areas with relatively low-cost housing is becoming more important, and I think that investment is going to stay. In, in places uh, in Canada. So that in general, as long as the economy is on a recovery mode, uh, and as long as we don't change dramatically the way we finance housing and follow the US in terms of using 
home equity as a credit card, which uh, got the U.S. in an enormous amount of trouble, I think we will be able to stay the course. We've got a supply issue right now, and that is driving prices higher. As the supply becomes more available, the market begins to calm down. As interest rates begin to move higher, I think uh, the market is on a pretty good footing. Okay, since I've got Warren warmed up, a very brief answer. When will interest rates start to increase? Second half of the year, uh, the uh, Governor of the Bank of Canada is saying uh, not before uh, mid-year. If the news becomes better than expected on a consistent basis, as it has been recently, you might see slightly earlier than that, but it's probably going to be the uh, middle part of the year before we actually begin to see rates rise. But do not expect uh, midterm mortgage rates, uh, three- and five-year mortgage rates, to wait to then to go up, because the bond market in the U.S. is already deteriorating. That will take mortgage rates higher before variable rate mortgages even begin to move. Thank you very much. Let's turn over to, to Don Martin. Don, you were talking a bit about uh, what would happen in terms of another election. Got a few questions about Michael Ignatieff and his future. First of all, will he survive 2010? Well, it depends how well he does. And if there's an early election and he's a disaster, he'll be gone very quickly. Um, if, uh, if there's a fall one, he might be able to hang on to the new year. But he's only got one election in him. If he doesn't do well, uh, at least keep Harper to a weaker minority, I would think that he really he wouldn't have the stomach to stick around and fight it again, and he wouldn't have the support in his party or his caucus to stay around. There's uh, others that are already salivating at the leadership. so. It uh, depends when the election is, uh, but if it's a late uh, election, he could survive. If it's a spring one and he bombs uh, a la Stéphane Dion, then he's going to be a goner. Then from another questioner, just a, a follow-up on that, what would Mike Lignati have learned from Barack Obama? Have a personality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the problem with Ignatiev is he actually is a nice guy in person, uh, but, you know, he gets that sort of Norman Bates look on his face when he's doing scrums, and, and you just sort of go, ooh, I don't know if I can bond with that man. So um, I, I think he needs some serious media training, which is surprising for me because I thought uh, this guy was going to step out uh, from behind as a broadcaster and a guy who had, knew how to command, had a pretty good command of media. Uh, and shine a lot brighter, but he's uh, clearly uh, not up to the big show yet, so he has to improve if he wants to uh, win voters over. Terrence, uh, not specifically directed at you, and if you're not the right person, you let me know, but one of our questioners asked, what's your prediction politically for the city of Toronto in an election campaign year? What's going to happen here? The finances of this city are in some distress. Where do you think the city's going? Well, well, it's uh, certainly going to be uh, the best municipal election we've had in decades. Uh, f at least four really strong candidates. Uh, I don't know Mr. Rossi at all, so I don't know how to judge him. Uh, I'm not a big fan of George Smitherman. Uh, he's coming, trying to portray himself as a, as a Mr. Nice Guy these days all of a sudden when he has a reputation for being exactly the opposite. Uh, but he's obviously got a following. Uh, John Tory. Uh, also, uh, apparently a nice guy and has some following. Uh, you'd have to bet on Smitherman, I guess, but I'd like to think that Mr. Rossi will give him a good run for his money because uh, he said the right things. His opening gambit is, uh, when, as mayor, he would take a 10% pay cut, and that, while that would be, mean nothing to him personally, he wanted to send a signal to all employees at City Hall. This would be the first time uh, we would have a mayor and even a candidate who is willing to take on uh, the issue of municipal uh, wages, municipal costs in a serious way. 
so uh, I'm sort of on Mr. Rossi's side, but I have no idea who's going to win. And I would not bet on John Tory uh, uh, because he's, uh, anyways, that's. <laughs> but the city's in a, in, a, in a fiscal mess and uh, uh, it'll take uh, a big sweep at City Hall and it looks like there's a good chance we're going to get it uh, this, this coming election. Okay, Diane, I had a choice of two, so I'm going to ask you this one that came earlier. What's the greatest threat to the world, global warming or the growing world population? Greater threat. <laughs> you got to put 30 seconds. Overpopulation. Okay. Then you get another one since you were so succinct. Um, we'll Wait a second. Wait a second. It sounds like television, you get a minute and 15 or a minute and 30 for all these issues. Okay, will hosting the G8 summit do any good for Canada, Diane? Is this gonna do anything for our role in the world? Well, I think, it, I think it's great. I think Canada, I think we do punch above our weight because of the things that the other speakers have talked about. I mean, we do have one of the strongest, best banking systems in the world, and we have a resource base that is the envy of the world. Uh, and so, uh, like Australia, I think we have, uh, and we have lovely societies that treat people really nicely and, and very few social problems. So I, I think that it'll just showcase uh, us in a, in a light that'll, that'll be to the good for us. Uh, direct benefit, I don't know. And of course, we will be diluted in importance because it'll be G20 now. But I still think that Canada is... Uh, can hold its head very high. We have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. And, and fortunately, the oil sands thing didn't really gain traction. And that's another thing that we have to thank Obama and the administration there for is that they have not piled on. And he's talked the talk of global warming, fossil fuels, alternatives. He's never talked about oil sands and quietly approved an 800,000 barrel a day bitumen pipeline through Wisconsin to refineries in the U.S. while he was in power. So they understand they need our oil, and, they're, and they've, they've got to play that game very carefully. And he's gotten a lot of criticism from the Greens uh, in the U.S. over not uh, piling on to Canada. Okay, here's an open question for anybody who wants to bite. How likely is it that U.S. legislation or policies will create a negative market climate for either Canadian oil or Canadian natural gas? Uh, I would say... Uh, not likely. There will be some noise about, uh, about the issue. There will be some negotiation. Uh, uh, but I don't think there, there, there will be. And I'll change my mind about that in 30 seconds, but that's what I'm saying. It's actually interesting. I wanted to look back at last year's because, remarkably, uh, the predictions last year were, were pretty, pretty good. Warren, you said that you like to be somewhat generic or general so you don't get pinned down too much. But they were actually pretty, pretty good. Okay. Well, I wasn't here. You weren't, no. Um, who who willing to weigh in on where they think the TSX will finish up a year from now? Somebody won the contest very closely uh, today, but uh, we're going to be up, we're going to be down. The economic fundamentals are certainly pointing to uh, not a great year, um, but certainly uh, an up year. Uh, first half of the year, I think we're going to see stronger growth in the second half of the year, and those fundamentals are, are more positive. We've got uh, earnings that will be supported uh, in the resource sector by very profitable um, uh, commodity prices, higher oil prices and the like, so that should be quite favorable.
Okay. I'm sort of getting the wrap-up, but I had saved the most serious question for the end, so this is an open question. How many women will come forward to say that they slept with Tiger Woods in 2010? <laughs> Somebody suggested Diane might have a, a her point of view on that, but I don't... Her husband's here. I know that, eh? <laughs> There'll be a few more with their lawyers uh, beside them. Great story. Well, that concludes the question and answer session. I want to thank you all for your questions. Uh, I want to turn it back over to John in a minute to adjourn the meeting, but first of all, I want to let you take advantage of the complimentary National Post subscriptions available to all of you here today. It's going to entitle you to a 30-day complimentary subscription if you're not already an avid subscriber to the paper. I want to thank all of the panelists here today for joining us. Thank you all for coming out. And uh, I'm going to want to turn it back over to uh, John Capobianco of the Canadian Club. also want to thank uh, uh, Paul Godfrey of the National Post, our presenting sponsor, Scotiabank. So, John, back to you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, thank you, Sean. And thank you all to our panelists, Terence Corcoran, Diane Francis, Warren Justin, and Don Martin. As always, it was a pleasure to have you with us today sharing your predictions for the year to come. Special thanks to Sean, whose perceptions and insights helped to keep us focused on the important issues while making sure that everyone had a chance to be heard. I'd also like to reiterate our special appreciation to Scotiabank, sponsor of this 2010 annual financial outlook. Thank you again. I hope everyone was taking notes and that they will join us in January 2011 to see just how accurate today's predictions actually were. You can always double check the facts by going to the Canadian Club's website and downloading a podcast of today's event. Again, thanks to everyone for joining us today and best wishes for a successful and prosperous 2010. This concludes our live television programming, which will also be broadcasted on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV, Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of the Canadian Club events. This concludes our meeting. The meeting is now adjourned. Thank you all. <laughs>